Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and flamingos everywhere with little plastic statues of pink people outside their trailers. <laughs> It's Thursday at three o'clock, and you know what that means? Live from Michigan State University campus and live from Chowchilla, California, it's Tea with BBB. I'm your host with the most, Bill Van Patten, AKA BBB, international superstar and your very own diva of SLA. And speaking of flamingos, in the studio are two people who can be found standing on one leg on any given afternoon. Mm -hmm. My co-host, Donna Gellica Kramer and Walter Hopkins. Hey kids, how you doing? We are doing great. Hello, everybody. We are happy to be here and ready for a great show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be a great show. And, and honestly, they do not stand on one leg. I just want to let everybody on the audience know that's just a joke. They're, they're, they <laughs> both stand on two legs all the time when they stand. But most of the time they have to sit down because their jobs require them to sit down a lot. So anyway, fling, flamingos remind me of Florida. So I just want to do a shout out to all of our listeners mm. and people in Florida with Irma barreling down on that state in the near future if you haven't already done so please get the heck out we want you to be safe and sound yes um and we're still waiting on news from some of our friends in puerto rico so everybody be safe in florida well what'd y'all do for labor day anything fun angelica for labor day a nice long weekend i no, went like, to no. the u2 concert that was amazing oh you did mm -hmm. did i ever tell you i met mono in real life really I met, uh, yes, he was opening a clothing line at Saks huh. years ago. Um, and I was dating somebody who worked at Saks. And so we got in, my best friend Gretchen and I got in because she's a big, big Bono fan. So we got in and got the guy's my height. I was looking at him in the eyes, <laughs> just like, just like this, you know, yeah. like I couldn't believe a major star like that was exactly my height. I was so pleased to see that short people could make it in the world, I tell you. <laughs> well, you have. Yeah, well, shouldn't yeah, be but, any you news know. to you. <laughs> no, I am an international superstar. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you got to see Bono. Good for you. Was yeah. it fun? Oh, it was an amazing concert. Oh, good. How about you, Walt? Did you do anything on Labor Day? Um, not really. I was sick, so it was oh, no, no fun. Yeah. Oh, gosh. What'd you have? Anything really bad or oh, just, just like a, a little passing I mean, I bug? literally spent most of the day kind of hanging out in, in my bed and watching some shows and yeah. It was no fun. It you was mean just a cold. listening to tea with BVP? Oh, of course, yeah, listening okay. to tea. He was our, to He it. was binge listening. <laughs> between that and Orange and the New Black, he was just bouncing back and forth yeah, between TV exactly and podcast, right. TV and podcast. Well, I have some fun Labor Day trivia facts. Would you two like to hear them? Please. As long as we're not being asked the trivia. <laughs> no, no, no. I just want you to know because it's you know it's interesting that we have holidays, and a lot of times people don't know where the holidays come from. Did you know that Labor Day was? Uh, first an official state level holiday and not a federal level holiday hmm. in which state this is true it began the first state who officially recognized labor day was oregon in guess what year 1887 wow and then very quickly right after that colorado followed suit massachusetts followed suit then new jersey and new york um and then it was like a domino effect states just kept adopting hmm. labor day and by 1894 i think it is a majority of states, something like 28, 29 states, uh, had a Labor Day. And so Congress finally passed a federal law in June of that same year, June of 1894, and that's how we got Labor Day. Hmm. So it all, actually all started with states. So that was pretty cool, I thought, to find that out. There you go. Now you know something new, Walter. Yeah, and I'll probably forget it in a few brief moments. But <laughs> Well, we'll give you a quiz on it later, okay? Angelica, I hope Angelica wrote and took the notes, and we'll give him a little quiz as well. All right. <laughs> Okay, uh, we've got a great show today. Our topic is blocking, which we'll get to in a little while, but I want to remind everybody that what do we usually have in every show, Walter? We ha always have what? Uh, SLA challenge question and yes. a diva challenge question. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So in a few moments, I'm going to be giving the SLA challenge question to people. You'll have uh, time to call in. The first person to get a call in with the correct answer will win a prize. So, as usual, I always tell you, keep your cell phones close by. You don't want to be far from your phone. And the same for the Diva Challenge question. I'll read that question a little bit later in the show after we've done the SLA Challenge question. And again, you'll have time to pick up, punch in our number, and tell Dustin, I'm calling with the answer to the Diva question. One of these days, the Diva's question is going to be about me, but I've been holding that off. Should be. 
Okay, the number to reach us at is 517-884-4321. Again, 517-884-4321. Again, Dustin is on the phone lines waiting for your call. And Angelica will be honoring, monitoring Mixler. Angelica, you on Mixler? What are you doing there I on am. your computer? Yes, I'm telling people the number to call. Come on. Good, good. We want lots of calls. Why do we want lots of calls, Walter? Because? We're a call-in show. And? And because if you call in today, you will have the opportunity to win a copy of the brand new book, What's On? While we're on the topic by, I almost said, What's On the Topic? While we're on the topic by BVP. Oh, poor Walter. You can tell he's a little off today because he's still recuperating from his, his Labor Day weekend. Um, but yeah, actually, that's true. So uh, in addition to the SLA challenge question and Diva challenge question, which you get a prize if you win that, we're, uh, again, giving a book away um, from uh, one of my book from Actful while we're on the topic. And we'll do a drawing. Everybody who calls in gets a chance to win that. As usual, we put your name in a hat. And then at five minutes before the end of the show, we reach into that hat. We pull out a name and see who it is. So, again, the phone number is 517-884-4321. As Walter said, we are a talk show, a call-in talk show. If you don't call in, then it's just me and Angelica and Walter talking to each other, and I can just look at the faces right now, and they're going like, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Gosh. <laughs> We're falling asleep already. I know. Look at you. I can tell you're nodding. Off. You're going to nod off and hit that microphone. Then you're going to have one of those big on your heads, Walter. You better be careful. I'll do my best. Oh. All right. So um, should I get on the topic? Yes, of please. Let's do. just get it out there. Let's get it out there. I know we have people who like, I think that our audience is split. Some people like to hear me talk a lot about things. They want to know, what does Van Patten think about this? Or what does this stuff really mean? Some people say, no, uh, keep it short and let people call in. So I kind of tried to hit a middle ground today. We'll see if I, if I, how, how good I am at it. But again, our, our topic today is blocking. And this was a term that was coined back in, I think it was 1969 by uh, L.J. Karim in a paper that was published in, uh, I forget what journal, Psychological Bulletin or something like that. Uh, blocking is not a linguistic term or a linguistic phenomenon, but a psychological term. It's, it's come straight from the psychological literature. And it refers to situations in which, you ready for this, gang? Put your listening ears on. This is tough. It refers to situations in which an existing conditioned response inhibits or impairs a new response, right? So a, uh, situations in which an existing conditioned response inhibits or impairs a new response. So here's an example. It's not the best example. The, the classic example they give when you research this topic is about uh, pigeons and lights and pecking and that kind of stuff. And like, eh, that's boring. So I'm going to give you one from my own life. Okay, say I, like many people, have been conditioned that if I hear a siren when I'm driving, I pull over to the right side of the road, right? Walter, do you hear a siren? You pull over the right side of the road, right? Exactly correct. It's like automatic. You hear that siren, right? Angelica, you do that too, right? Absolutely. You hear that, and you go, okay, I'm pulling over to the side of the road. However, I would not pull over to the side of the road if all of a sudden I heard a continuous horn honking. If I heard a continuous horn honking, I'd be looking around going, who the heck is honking? Why are they honking? What's going on? In other words, I'm conditioned to pull over to the right side of the road only if a siren sounds. And that conditioned response blocks me from pulling over when I hear any other type of thing that could potentially be an alarm, right? So that's, that's what blocking is. Some conditioned response blocks you from doing that same thing when there's another stimulus or something else coming in. Now, blocking has been applied, and as you might surmise, because I'm going to say it, as you might surmise, it's also been misapplied in learning theory. And recently, it's crept into the vocabulary related to language acquisition. Um, in its current iteration or its current form, blocking in language acquisition means, in essence, that first language habits can impede learning second language habits. Now, does that sound familiar to you guys out there? Walter, Angel, does that sound familiar to you? I've heard it. Mm -hmm. First language habits can impede, yeah. Where does that go back to? Goes back to what? What kind of learning theory? Starts with a B. Behaviorist. Behaviorism, exactly. And the fact that this paper was published in 69, 1969 about blocking um, is, uh, is actually shows you that this, this kind of thing is deeply rooted in behavioristic psychology. Now, in the L2 literature, an example is given in a paper written by Nick Ellis and Nuri Sagara, people I know well, so I don't want to criticize them. They're very, 
good, competent researchers, and Nick Ellis has been a force in the field. Um, but I do have something to say about, about um, blocking as it's been applied. Um, so in their paper, for example, Ellis Nagara say uh, that a language like English uses adverbs of time as a primary indicator of temporal reference. So English speakers, when they're listening or reading, they're, they're more reliant on words like yesterday, last week, tomorrow, next week, to get information about time reference as opposed to verb endings. So even though there, there's an ED on verbs that signals past tense, what is more reliable in English, according to the research on processing, are adverbials of time. Again, yesterday, last week, next week, right now, and so on. And the, how blocking works in this situation is that when you are learning a language like Spanish, okay, um, you might have a problem because in Spanish, speakers rely more on verb forms as the most reliable cues to temporal reference. So they rely a little less on things like yesterday, last week, and so on, rely more on the past tense endings um, on verb forms. And so the idea here is that your conditioned response in English of relying on ver uh, adverbs of time is going to block your ability to use um, verbs in Spanish as the indicators of time reference. Now, there's a problem with this hypothesis and with blocking more generally. First of all, language acquisition is not about conditioned responses, as it's talked about in psychological literature. I think we all know that, right? Language is not about conditioned responses. And second, there is no clear evidence that blocking, as it is, as it is understood in psychology, actually works in acquisition the way people talk about it in psychology. So let's just go back to the case of adverbs. Walter, do you remember? I'm, I'm checking Walter's memory because I can tell he's fading already. So Walter, did you, that <laughs> I'm hitting case, my head against the microphone, you mean? I know. I can see you nodding off there. Yeah, Angelica, right. you stick, a, stick a pencil in the monkey. We'll do. We'll do. Um, yeah, just punch him in the ribs every now and then, poor guy. I have to tell you all out there before I go on, Walter works really, really hard. And since I'm physically not there right now, he's working extra hard and, and he can't come into my office and close the door and go, oh no. And, <laughs> and I take, I'd take him to lunch or something to get him away from the office. So he's working extra hard. So thank you, Walter. I appreciate Aww. that. But anyway, getting back to the, the Ellis and Scagara study, remember what we just said, Walter, about that? What, what's the issue with adverbs and time frame and all that kind of stuff? That we tend to- Spanish and English. We tend to rely, in English, we tend to rely on those things like yesterday, last night, where you can't do that as much in other languages. Okay, particularly languages like Spanish, where you can do it, but the tendency in native speakers is to rely more on verb forms. Okay, so um, that's, um, the idea is that English, again, creates a block if you have got a conditional response in English for rely on adverbs. And that's exactly what Ellis and Sagara found in their study. But here's the problem. They only researched learners of Spanish. And this is the only study I know that clearly lays out blocking. There might be others, but this is the only one I really know of. Um, and so they did find that English speakers learning Spanish tend to rely more on adverbs than verb forms. Um, but here's the problem. They only researched learners of Spanish. Greg Keating and I did a eye tracking study in which we used both second language learners of Spanish with English as a first language. And guess what? Second language learners of English was Spanish as a first language, right? See how we double, we balance that out? Uh, what we found was that both groups from the beginning rely on adverbs, not just the English speakers. So even the Spanish speakers learning English from the get-go were relying on adverbs. And this ties more into my model on input processing, which says there are universal things about processing that have nothing to do with blocking or first language. Um, so the idea that English speakers rely on adverbs, and that gets in the way of, of processing Spanish verbs, for example, in the second language context, is not necessarily true because it looks like that's a universal thing, not something specific to English. Because again, the Spanish speakers learning English in our study showed the same thing. They showed a reliance on adverbs and not on verb forms when they were processing um, English from the beginning. Um, <clears throat> I think what blocking fails to consider in theories that use things like blocking is that there are universals in language. There are universals in linguistics and there are universals in language processing. And these things constrain acquisition. And therefore, they also constrain what the L1 does or the first language does in second language acquisition. Now, with that said, Angelica Welter, am I saying there is no L1 acquisition, uh, L1 influence in L2 acquisition? Is that what I just said? No, no. senor. No, I did not. So I'm make sure our listeners are hearing that. I'm not saying there's no L1 influence. We know there is. But I think blocking is just an updated way to talk about 
behaviorism in my view. So if you think I got it wrong, audience, call in and let me know. I know Reed out there in Hawaii is thinking about this topic. Let me know if you think I got it wrong. Uh, in the meantime, massive negative L1 transfer uh, is something that we need to talk about, whether it exists or not. And I actually have an SLA question about that, the challenge question. Would you like to hear it? Yes, I would please. love to hear it. Here's the SLA challenge question related to our topic today, sort of, kind of. Okay, here we go. Everybody listening, got your pencils out there or your little keyboards? Mm -hmm. In the open. early days of, what's that? Google open. <laughs> Google open. In the early days of second language acquisition, error analysis was used to study learner production. What people asked was what non-native-like structures appeared in learner output? So the question is, did the research on error analysis find that L1 transfer or L1 influence accounted for most of the learner's non-native-like structures or only a small portion of their non-native structures? So let me repeat the question. In the early days of second language acquisition, error analysis was used to study learner production. People asked what non-native-like structures were in learner output. Did that research on error analysis find that L1 transfer or L1 influence accounted for, the, for most of what learners produced that was non-native-like or only a small fraction of what they produced being non-native-like? Okay, call in with your answer and uh, you win a prize. And your, and your name, no matter whether you get it right or wrong, your name goes in the hat to win a book too. So call in no matter what, even if you don't think you have the right answer. Okie dokie. So um, we had a contest this week. Angelica, what was that contest on? Do you remember? Um, the, the, I never know how to uh -oh, pronounce I that caught word. Her off the guard. Giffy, she was looking at the Jiffy. Is it a Jiffy or a Giffy? A GIF. <laughs> I think it's a GIF, right? GIF. It's a GIF. I never GIF. know how you pronounce it. I think we should call it Jiffy. <laughs> Whenever I hear the word Jif, I think of that peanut butter. Well, Jif, exactly. Right? Yeah. Choosy mothers choose Jif. Anyway, okay, so, so this animation yeah. that will depict blocking. That's what yes, the contest exactly. was. We had a Twitter contest for blocking gifts. And guess what, folks? We have a winner. So if you're looking at Twitter me. and you're looking at <laughs> Walter, was it you? Oh, oh I'm Walter sorry. is sad. All right. Walter Walter got blocking blocked. Um, okay, so our winner for the Twitter contest is ready. Drum roll, everybody. Jeannie Mitchell with the paw block. Okay, we have to admit that we love that little dog and her gif blocking that guy coming in for a kiss on the dog. That was the cutest thing. There were a couple of other really good contenders. Um, wish we could send everybody something because we got we had some really good ones, but that one just broke everybody's heart. That little dog was so cute putting up his paw and doing what we are now going to call the paw block. So everybody out there, when someone comes near you, just think of the paw block. Put your <laughs> hand out and say, uh-uh, uh-uh. There you go. That's right, Walter. Put your little paw up. Um, Talk to the okay. hand. Talk well, and hand. actually, Jeannie, if you are listening, please um, send us your email address so we can send you your prize. Well, send us your actual address. Yes. Oh, to sorry, our email. not your email address. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, we need your actual address. That's we're just contact us we'll, we'll eventually get your address from you one way or another. So, yeah. All right. So, uh, okay. How about uh, Mixler and email? What do we got coming in there? Um, people would like you to repeat the SLA challenge question one more time, please. It's a rather complex. I know one. it's kind of a long one. Yep. I couldn't. I, I couldn't shorten it. Okay, here we go. Uh, in the early days of second language acquisition, error analysis, E R R O R, error anal analysis, was used to study learner production. So, for example, you'd get a Walter to talk for an hour and I get to talk for an hour about stuff. And then you'd analyze their speech. That's what error analysis was. You looked at their quote unquote errors. And what people are asking was what these errors or non-native-like structures were. Where did they come from? So the question is, did the research show that these errors or these non-native-like structures were largely due to L1 influence? Or was the L influence on errors minimal? That's basically the question. What did the research show? This was research from the 70s and early 80s, basically, where we, all this was done. Okay, did I repeat it enough, Angelica? Was that good? Yes, thank you very did much. Did you like that? Did you like Absolutely. that repeating? Absolutely, that was wonderful. I could repeat some more. Repeat, 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 <laughs> repeat, repeat. Well, done. I have an encouraging okay, email that I would love to read, if you don't mind. Okay, go ahead. I hope you don't mind. 
I hope you don't mind that I'll Angelica, read this he's back. email. Oh, Angelica, boy, he's back. Okay, this email is do? from Maria. And this is an encouragement. Encouraging Take email. an email, Maria. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> she says, Address it to Walter's wife. <laughs> what? Please just read the email, Walter. Okay, here I go. Your, your show last Thursday about the noticing hypothesis was the best I've heard, and I've listened to all since I discovered Bill at Actful last, last November. The content teaching was very helpful and made even more so through the detailed questions of the gal in California who had called the previous week, the emphasis on how much repetition is needed, the guy who asked about how to lead up to, build up to a task. Your answer and explanation helped me a lot, and the answer about allowing crosstalk was helpful. The more teaching, Bill, the better, especially when you tie the real-life classroom questions. You are the only input I get that is instructional for a CI practitioner. Working through your latest book, too, Maria in Western North Carolina Middle School French Teacher. Yay, Maria. Thank you for that. Thank you. That was very nice. Well, Maria, I hope you go to Actful because I'll be there. Bring your book because I'm doing a book signing that Saturday at Actful. And I would be very happy to talk with you, talk one-on-one, sign your book, whatever. So hope to meet you at Actful or some other place soon. All right. We got a caller um, on the line. It looks like we got a caller from Spain, is it? Is Iso on the phone? Eos, Bonnie. Eos, yeah. Eos. Eos, okay, funny. I'm looking. Eos, okay, great, Eos. Where are you calling from in Spain? What city? Uh, I'm from Barcelona. Barcelona. From Barcelona, Spain. okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, well, great. Okay, Eos, you're calling about the SLA challenge question? That's it. Okay, all right. Then let me read it again. Let me say it one more time for everybody, and then you can answer the question, okay? Okay. All right, here go we go. Ahead. In the early days of second language acquisition, error analysis was used to study learner production. What people asked was what non-native-like structures or what errors were in learner output. Did this research on error analysis show that L1 transfer uh, accounted for most of the errors or only for a small portion of the errors? That's basically the question. Your answer is? For a small portion of the errors. Ding, 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 ding. Excellent. You are correct. You got it. You are correct. The, um, the error analysis research basically showed anything from, depending on the study, from 5% to 20-something percent, which is less than a quarter. In other words, when all this data was collected back in the 70s, 80s on learner output at different levels of, of proficiency, uh, at most one quarter of what learners were doing could be traced in any way to the L1. Now, with that said, um, there is the issue of avoidance, which I can talk about later if people want. But even if you add avoidance in where learners are trying not to do something in the L2, then um, you still are way, way under um, half of what learners do. That's not native, like being accounted for by L1 influence. Well, thank you, Eos. That was great. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you for your great show, Bill. Well, thank you. And then uh, we make sure your name's in the hat. And then later on, we'll do a drawing. And you'll not only will you get a SLA challenge prize, but you'll be a contestant for my book. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thanks Have so much for day. calling, Eos. And can okay. you, Bye. Eos, if you're still there, call us back with your address, please. Okay, I will. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Or, or you can email it to us either way. Yep. Thanks for calling. That's all the way from Barcelona, Spain. That's Look awesome. At that. Yay. I love. Have you ever been to Barcelona, Angelica? I have. Yes. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, beautiful. A beautiful city. That's where Nuri I found. Sagarra, who is, Nuri Sagarra from the article Elson Sagarra talked about earlier. She's from uh-huh. she's, well, she's from outside of Barcelona. She's, oh, cool. She's Catalana. Love it. And she's yeah. So yeah, Barcelona is a beautiful city. Well, I have an email here from someone in Valencia, Spain. Would you like me to read it to you? <laughs> sure. Go ahead. I think we got a call coming in, but we have time for an email question. Sure. First. Go ahead. Uh, It says, in the last episode, Bill talked about noticing and mentioned ungrammaticality and hidden meaning. These cannot be noticed. How can ungrammaticality and hidden meaning work with input processing? Surely it's the same. What is the best strategy for learners to acquire ungrammaticality and hidden processing? So this is Andrew. And like I said, he's in Valencia, Spain. He says he's working on writing his master's thesis. So any help, and then he puts in parentheses, input. Would be appreciated. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> nice pun. You said that's Andrew. Andrew? Andrew from Valencia. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Andrew from Valencia. Send me an orange, will you? Anyway, um, that's a good question. Um, but ungrammaticality is not acquired. Ungrammaticality, the way I was framing it, 
just exists. It's a result of the interaction of universal grammar and um, the processing of input creating the grammar in your head. So you don't have to acquire ungrammaticality. It just happens to you as the data comes and gets processed. So the classic example would be, or one classic example we give is, is something like, how do you know, um, we gave Angelica the, 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 this is not classic, this is one I use, but then we gave Angelica the quiz last week with the re, when you add a re to a verb, like re, repaint, uh, re, rewrite. And then I asked her, can you rebake a cake? And she said, no. And I go, well, how do you know? She goes, I don't know. It just sounds wrong, right? Or something like that. Or can you re-pet um, the dog? So what happens is there are, there are hidden constraints through universal grammar and the language learning mechanisms in your head that keep you from doing things because of the way language itself works. These are deep hidden properties of language that are available to everybody. And so they don't need to be acquired because they're just there. And as your grammar grows on uh, processing input data, then um, these constraints um, automatically apply um, to the language you're learning. And so this is how you acquire a lot of ungrammaticality. Um, now, in some models, ungrammaticality is predicated upon the idea that um, if you don't hear something input, it's probably ungrammatical. That doesn't necessarily work well because you have to remember that you also know things are ungrammatical that you never hear in the input. That's a flip side of this. So you can know something as ungrammatical uh, uh, or ungrammatical um, even though you haven't heard it yet. And the best example I can give you is go read um, Van Patten Smith, 2015, in um, Studies in Second Language Acquisition, with our study, a little study on Japanese, where we show that after 25, just 25 minutes of learning Japanese, with no prior knowledge of a language like Japanese or any subject after verb language like Japanese, it's astounding what these learners are showing us through our, our self-paced reading test. Um, it's really amazing. And they're showing us both stuff they know to be grammatical that they haven't encountered in the input and stuff that's ungrammatical that they haven't encountered in the input. So it's, 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 it's just something that exists in our head. It's not necessarily due just to the input or input processing. Okay, we have another call on the line. We have, hey, look who it is. It's Reed calling from the great state of Hawaii. Reed, are you there? Hey, yeah, hey, I'm here. Hey, Reed, how's it going? Good, how's the, how are you doing? Pretty good. I'm really excited because the weather here in Central California is finally broke. It's no longer in the hundreds. I spent most of the summer in the hundreds. Um, yeah. wow. And now it's only in the 80s. <laughs> so I'm just ecstatic. Nice. So, you so what you, what, some light sweatshirt weather soon. Yeah. So uh, what are you calling about? What's up? Okay. So sort of a, a string of thoughts that I think kind of will relate to classroom teaching, I think. Um, so... Okay, so I just recently read Nick Ellis's uh, 2006 paper. It's called Selective Attention and Transfer Phenomena in L2 Acquisition. It's a long title. Continued Contingency, right. Q Competition, Salience, Interference, Overshadowing, Blocking, and Perceptual Learning. And so he's, you know, I'm, and I'm not calling to, to, to negate anything about universal grammar. And he, he kind of says at the end that whether you're, whether you're taking a universal grammar approach or a general learning approach, that, that if cues aren't salient in the input, meaning if, if people aren't, able to even perceive it, which he says is a product of, of frequency of usage that people, when native speakers are speaking naturally, and he says even when caregivers like parents and teachers, there are certain you know, little endings on words or past tense morphology or things that just are not made clear enough to be heard by learners that if those cues aren't heard at all, that the universal grammar has nothing to work with, that this, the, 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 the general learning architecture and the universal grammar would struggle to pick up on things that are just not clear in the input. So it makes sense that you'd say that Spanish learners and English learners both would pick up on time adverbials like yesterday and at the time and stuff first, because it's, it's more salient. And so I guess what my question is, um, is, is classroom learning more optimal than naturalistic learning out in the wild where classroom teachers have the opportunity to frequently make things salient and say, oh, notice this little thing here, it means this. Notice this little thing here, it means this is what the meaning is on this. It makes a difference. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that? Classroom learning compared to naturalistic learning. Um, let's just back up for a minute because I, I wanna say that, um, th that I'm, not, I'm not big on salience because it's one of the most ill-defined concepts in, okay. in second language research. Um, but I know where Nick's coming from, Nick Ellis. I know where he's coming from. And I don't disagree with him in principle, but I think we need to be careful when we throw around the term salience because it's really, mm. I, just, I just reviewed a bunch of papers for a book uh, that's coming mm. out on salience. And I noticed that there were 
10 papers and about six different definitions of salience going on mm-hmm. in this volume. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a real problem. Okay, with that so said, if I, if, um, yeah. with that said I, I think frequency in the input is more important than salience. And, and so the idea is that you can make things more frequent, regardless of what you think about saliency. Um, making things in the input more frequent just gives the processing mechanisms a much greater chance to pick something up. And it's not, and I think class, this is why I tell people, I said this yesterday and I'll, uh, to somebody, and I'll say this on the air right now. If language teaching doesn't change from its, its current structure where it's still largely driven by learn a rule, practice a rule, learn some vocabulary, practice vocabulary. If it doesn't change, <laughs> we are in the trouble of losing our jobs because that can be done just as well by technology. What technology mm. can't do is what we see going on in TPRS, what we see going on in task-based learning and in, in the kinds of classrooms we structure here where we combine um, principles of CI, TPRS, and task-based learning and so on. Mm. If teachers don't, if we don't move to do that, then we could be replaced. So my answer to you is the classroom is the ideal place, the best place for learners um, to bootstrap themselves into the language system, much better than naturalistic um, classroom, uh, naturalistic learning. Why? Because one of the things teachers can do is structure input in certain ways by using shorter sentences. We've talked on the air about pausing. We've talked about repetition in the input, asking things a different way, and so on. So all these things just provide many, many, many more opportunities for learners to early on start to tag things in the input that it, mm-hmm. under naturalistic learning might take them longer. Um, mm-hmm. And plus, you also in in classroom you get written input very often in the, in the naturalistic context. You can avoid written input um, depending mm-hmm. on again what your situation is. So yeah, so I think I know where you're headed in this read, and I don't know if you'd agree with me, but I think classrooms are the ideal, the perfect place, the 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 critical place for beginners mm-hmm. and intermediate learners to bootstrap themselves into the system. Otherwise, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just yeah. And so yeah, uh, that's what I think. Okay. Yeah. 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 I just wanted to clarify too that, uh, and thanks for answering all that. Um, the, what I meant, by, I know salience could talk about like the if meaning isn't clear, sound isn't clear. There's all different ways people talk about it. I just meant that if if it's if the sound isn't there, like if you say, um, "I'm going to go," "I'm going to go," and the learner never gets a chance to hear "I am going to go" or what those words are, and just hear "I'm going to go," then there's never there's never the, even the words in the input. So that's that. I just what I meant by salience is just the the sounds actually being there at all. Right. Well, but that's okay. But the, the, the learner, because again, you got to remember the way processing works is that. And for those of you that are listening, you're teaching. You don't have to worry about the fact that you have to say "I am going to go." You don't have to do that uh, because in your head is stored both "I'm gonna" and then the different parts. You you. Any native English speaker, for example, doesn't ju- doesn't just have I and am, I'm gonna and go and have some rule that mm-hmm, contracts mm-hmm. that. No, what you're having in your head is I'm gonna as a big lexical chunk. And you pull that down during production under certain circumstances. And under mm-hmm. other circumstances, because of context or whatever, you actually pull down I and am, am going, and you and you put it together a different way. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's style, it's context, it's who you're talking to, it's speed, all these things come to bear on what things in our head we pull down during production because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not all production is based on applying rules. A lot of production is based on applying chunks and routines. Otherwise, we sure, couldn't sure. speak but so it, rapidly. But if the little chunks were never in the input, that's what I'm saying. Like if, if it was all big chunks and never little chunks, then they wouldn't have oh. the little chunks to do anything with, right? Yeah, but they, but they do they do appear. They do. That's why, that's why okay. people wind up right. with this stuff. It, it does appear. It's just that, yeah. Okay. It, all right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Reed. Okay, you're yeah. in the draw. You're in the mix for a book later for a drawing. So awesome. thanks for calling in. All right. All right. Have a great day. Okay. Bye, okay. Reed. Bye, Reed. Bye, bye. Reed's a, Reed's a great guy. I actually met him um, before, and I saw him this summer at the NTPRS conference oh. in San Antonio. So good, cool. good guy. Lots of good ideas. Working on um, CI conference input in TPRS in in Hawaii with I think it's is it Chinese or Japanese? I forget which language. One of the East Asian languages. So good for him. All right, I'm going to give the diva challenge question now. Um, mm. So you ready for this? Yes, Walter. bring it on. This is Walter's question. You ready for this? Uh-oh. I'm going <laughs> back to Bette Midler. Oh. I'm going back to Bette Midler. These are my roots, okay? Back Chinese, to Bette by so. the way, for Reed. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you, Reed, for clarifying that, whoever said that. Okay, so Bette Midler, unlike other singing divas, Bette Midler has one kind of live recording that no other singing divas have. It was released in 1985. What was that recording? Huh. Again, unlike other singing divas, Bette Midler has one kind of live recording that no other singing divas have. It was released in 1985. What was that recording? And it was also nominated for a Grammy that year too. Huh. For, cool. for 86, I guess the, whenever the Grammys were for the stuff that was produced in 85. So call in if you got that answer, look it up, Googleize it, whatever. In fact, I was just listening to it this morning. I, I won't tell you anything because I'll give it away. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, how about anything come back on Mixler or email about what we're talking about or anything else for that matter? It doesn't have to be about blocking. By the way, we should just say this about blocking for, for teachers out there. Um, one thing about blocking and L1 transfers, I hear a lot of teachers out there tell me, but there's so much influence. If I let my students talk, you know, you, you can see the L1 influence in their speech. L let me just tell you all one thing that you stop worrying about that. Because if you hear a lot of L1 influence in their speech, it's because they're talking beyond their ability. And, um, and we're doing things that force them or because they want to um, talk uh, in ways that they don't have underlying capacity for. And so what they do is they think in the first language and dress it up in the second language. And it sounds like the L1 is massively interfering with learning. It's not. Um, I might talk about that next week um, in our show, it depends. I've got two topics going on in my head for next week. So we might come back to that issue. So for teachers out there, my advice to you is don't worry about the L1. Worry about providing lots of input and lots of context um, uh, to make your meaning clear. <clears throat> and that will help minimize any effects of the L1, as we said before. Okay, we got a call from Luis. Luis, are you on the line? Yes, I am on the line, BVP. Hey, Luis, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Brazil. From Brazil? What part of Brazil are you calling from? I'm calling from northeastern Brazil. Okay, so Walter, you don't have any relatives there, do you? You and Laura? I do not, no, but in, we have some in Sao Paulo, my, my so brother. Do I. Now, so do I. Wow. Walter, are you going to talk to Luis in, in Portuguese, in Brazilian Portuguese? Oi, Luis. Tudo bem? Ótimo. A sua esposa é brasileira, correto? Ela morou no Brasil muitos anos, mas não é brasileira. Interessante, ok. A gente pode Você falar mais tarde. <laughs> All right. They're talking about Lauren Kishin. That's Walter's wife. So, okay, Luis, what you calling about? So, BVP, I would like to ask you a question about um, language acquisition, okay? You so, can ask me whatever you want, except my age and my weight. <laughs> so um, I have been learning German for a while, and um, I have something that I have noticed is that I find it extremely difficult to to grasp grasp the grammar only by exposure to the language. Okay, so is it possible to learn a foreign language uh, without properly studying the grammar? Its grammar. Or do you think it is um, useful to study the grammar as well? And uh, if it is possible to, to reach an upper intermediate le level of the language without having traveled to the country? Um, let me answer the, the second question first. Um, the research is pretty clear that if you're gonna be an advanced speaker of a language, massive exposure to the language in the context and culture in which it's spoken or cultures is basically a must. That research is, we've had that research around since the late 50s, early 60s. John Carroll started, other people looked at it. Um, and so, um, and as I've said before on the show, if you look at the leap on the actual proficiency scale from intermediate to advanced, one of the things that I think is happening in the learner's head is they stop relying on their explicit learning one of the reasons the move is so hard from intermediate to advanced is you have to have a massive buildup in your head. And so at, at, when you're an advanced learner, you're no longer, an, or a lot less if you are, relying on your explicit knowledge for communication and you're, you're developing, you're using a lot more of your uh, implicit knowledge, your underlying system to communicate. And that's what makes that jump so hard. So when I hear you say this question, I think, I think, you, what you've got to understand is that 
there's explicitly acquiring the grammar or learning the grammar, and then there's, there's implicitly acquiring a linguistic system. And I won't call it a grammar because it doesn't look at all anything like the grammars you would read in a textbook anyway. So here's an example for you. In German, I wrote about this. It was published in December of 2016 in Foreign Language Annals, where someone did some research on the verb second rule in German, right? So um, what I show in there is how the textbook rule is not what winds up in your head. And so learners who actually have what looks like a advanced speakers of German who look like they have a second, a verb second rule in German actually have something else. So what they were relying for, relying on in the early stages of, of learning German by this verb second rule falls away because their system now is, their implicit system is taking over and there's something quite different and quite abstract that's not this verb second rule that's helping them produce sentences. So my answer to your question is yes, you can get the quote unquote grammar in your head through exposure. You can, everybody does. That's how you become an advanced or super speaker of a language, right? You can't just get it um, from learning textbook rules. Now, whether textbook rules help or not is open to debate. I don't think they do. The research to me seems pretty clear. I know there are people who would argue with me, but that's because I'm a generativist and I don't think of language as the same thing as a lot of other people who aren't generativists think languages. So, um, so I think, Luis, you could get a lot. In fact, I'll be, I'm, a, I'm, I'm testament to this. The, the little bit of French I have in my head is all acquired. I, it's not from learning French grammar and books. It's, it's from living and talking to people in French all the time and teaching and living in Quebec and having French roommates and all this kind of stuff. So, And anyway, my little so Portuguese I, that I just spoke to you, I've never, ever, ever taken a class in Portuguese. I uh, yeah. just picked it up for my time in Brazil. So there you go. So in Brazil. So Luis, I think what you, yeah. So I think that that rules and learning like that kind of make us feel good at the beginning and they help us, they give us an emotional crutch. Uh, but in their big picture of things, you just, you've got to be exposed to German and in context and, and let the grammar build up in your head over time. Okay? Okay, fantastic. Thank All you right. so very well, much. Good, good luck on that. We want you to call back next year and talk to Angelica in German, Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. Thanks, Louise. We'll put your name in the hat for the book. Auf okay. Wiederhören. Danke für den Anruf. Uh, oh, there we go. Make, don't make him feel bad. He's just learning. Come on. But he said he's been learning for a while. Well, but I think, you know, he's probably learning a bit here and a bit there, probably. I don't I know. just said um, goodbye. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Do we have uh, any Mixler or email questions we want to uh, adjust before we take our next call? We got calls coming in right and left here. That's, I Nothing? mean, we are a, a, a... We are a call-in yeah, show. Yeah, right? exactly. Okay, well, that's okay. All right, then we can, uh, if we're ready for the next call, I can take the next call. It hasn't come up on my feeder yet, so I don't know if the call has come through. There Ooh, it's it like is. Mm. Okay, it looks like it's ready. Marcy, are you on the line? I am. Hey, Marcy, where are you calling from? Ann Arbor, Michigan. Woo-hoo. Well, that's just down the road from MSU. Why aren't you in the studio visiting us live? <laughs> <laughs> Some of us are working today. Oh, okay. Well. <laughs> what does that mean, Marcy? We're all working. <laughs> well, yes, that's yeah. true. But some of us couldn't take that hour to come up there. <laughs> there we go. Well, if you ever right. feel like it, you you're, are... you're welcome to. <laughs> and I understand you are calling about the Diva Challenge question, correct? Yes, I am. Well, great. Let me repeat that question, everybody. Um, and... Um, Uh, then you can answer it. So we're back to Bette Midler, my favorite diva after myself, of course. So unlike <laughs> other singing, <laughs> unlike other singing divas, Bette Midler has one kind of live recording that no other singing divas have. It was released in 1985. What kind of recording was it? And it, so what was it? Is it a spoken word album? A spoken word album? Not quite. No. What? No. I mean, it is. Spoken partially, but it's just, it's, you got to be more specific. Oh, Uh-oh. is it? Oh, I can't be, it's like the name of it? Well, no, you have to tell me what kind of, what kind of recording. I so. just found out that it was a spoken word. That's what my friend told me, who's a huge fan of hers. Mm. Oh, well, your friend mm. should have given you more specific information. I can't. <laughs> well, maybe I should I mean, have just Googled it myself. <laughs> spoken, spoken word could mean you're reading a book on tape or something like that, right? And we're not talking about that. Yeah, so, um, yeah. All right. Okay, oh, Marcy, okay. I'm going to send you so back to the drawing board. Okay. All right. Well, at least, at least your name is in the half yep, of the book. Absolutely. There you go. 
All right. Sounds good. Take Thanks. care, Marcy. Oh, poor. Thanks poor for Marcy, going, Marcy got steered wrong by her friend. My, Marcy, I would divorce that friend if I were you. Just, <laughs> That's just harsh. Kidding. Just kidding. Well, I had to, she was harsh on me. You see, I got told about work. Some of us have to work, you know. <laughs> just being in the studio, putting the show Fair together. Enough. We're not working. We're just having a good time, right? Oh, just kidding, Marcy. Um, all right. Uh, so nothing on email, nothing on Mixler. Should we take our next call? I think we should take our next call. Yeah. Uh-oh, Marcy's got uh, competition mm-hmm. here because I think this is about the Diva Challenge question. So, Alexis, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Hey, Alexis, where are you calling from? I am in Minster, Ohio. Oh, the Buckeye State. Yes. <laughs> Remember when Walter thought a Buckeye was a chicken? <laughs> I don't, but that's really funny. We no. had a show one time, and we were all wondering what a buckeye was, and then Walter, Walter Googled, Googled it. Walter Googled buckeye, and buckeye is a chicken, but it's it not. It is a kind of chicken. It's not like a spotted chicken or something. And so for a while, we were saying, hey, the whole state's named after chickens. And then, boy, did we get read the riot act through email and Mixler on that. So and then we, we ate are. buckeyes, and it was delicious. But anyway. All right, Alexis, you're calling about the Diva Challenge question, correct? Yes, I am. Okay. Okay. Uh, so let me go ahead and let me wait a sec. Let me go ahead and read the question one more time. So unlike other singing divas, Bette Midler has one kind of live recording that no other singing divas have. It was released in 1985. What kind of recording was it? Is it a comedy album? Comedy recording? Ding 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 yeah. ding! Yes, it there is. We go. <laughs> she did a one-hour live stand-up comedy show at the Improv in Los, Ange- Los Angeles. And uh, was actually nominated for a Grammy that year for Best Comedy Album. So one of the a multi-talented person who can do everything from drama to comedy and just incredible talent. So good for you. You win a yeah. prize and your name also goes in for the book. How's that? Awesome. Well, thank you. I'm so excited. Okay, I Alexis, do us a favor. And I, I got deflected. <laughs> okay, well, mail us at tea with, uh, tea with BVP at gmail.com with your address and stuff so that we can um, mail you your prize, okay? Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Thanks, Alexis. Alexis. All right. Thanks for Bye. calling. All right. I should tell, you know, but nobody's nobody's giving me the title. I should give another prize if people can give me the title mm. of that recording. It's easy to look up now. So um, if you call in with the title of that recording, you got three minutes to do it. I can uh, give you a prize for that. In the meantime, I think we got another call coming in. Um, it looks like it's coming in. Um, it says it's coming up, but maybe it's not quite patched through to our... Um, our uh, sound system yet, so I can hear it in my headphones. So anything in email, Walter, while we're waiting? I have an email, yes. They were really interested in this topic from last week about noticing, and this is an email from Ryan. And Ryan asks, isn't noticing just explicit, which would mean that it can't become implicit? Um, Yes and no. Um, The problem with noticing is, again, it's... It doesn't have a very good definition or explanation of what it means by noticing with awareness. That's when awareness is involved. So depending on how you define awareness, you have different degrees of explicitness. So Ryan, you're right on the one hand, if it's really super explicit and, and there's there's a focus on form without you know meaning attached and so on, then it's not going to go anywhere. Um, it's not, it's not going to become part of the implicit system. Um, and again, it, it, a lot of these problems we have, I see in the field, has to do with definitions of language and how language works. So um, well, that topic will keep coming up, so I'm not going to say anything more about that, because we do have our call coming in now, and, it's, and so I'm going to take it. I, the caller is Grant. Grant, are you on the line? Grant is on the line. Grant! Are you on the line, Bill? Hey, Grant. I'm working the line here. Let me Grant. tell you, you're calling from Minnesota, <laughs> aren't you? Grantito. I am. I'm calling from my new classroom in my new district in my new school in Minnesota. Wow. wow, good for you. Congratulations on all those new, new news. And I hear you have you have a conference coming up. You're going to plug your conference? Lots of news, man. After 18 years, you would think that you know how to do this, but um, I'm learning new things every day um, thanks to these kids. So, yeah, I wanted to tell you about that. I heard you uh, just a little bit earlier, Bill, say that this, that, that this is really about um, uh, not being replaced by technology or other things, right? Well, what I was saying was that that teachers need to do in class what they do best, what is, what is yes. the best thing for acquisition. Because the other things can be replaced by technology. So explicit learning, practice with grammar, learning rules, looking at vocabulary lists, all that kind of stuff can happen 
I can, you know, that's what Rosetta Stone's about. That's what all those other things are about. Um, but only a teacher, only a real life person can do interaction with comprehensible input with a group of kids or students or one-on-one -on -one or however you want to phrase it. That can only happen live with real people. Yeah. So. And and I couldn't I couldn't agree with that more. And and one of the things that that we know is that teaching in that way isn't easy necessarily, right? It develops it, it's a it's a skill that develops over time. And so that's why I'm calling because we have um, no. Before I tell you about the details here, I want to say that the other piece of this uh, bill that you guys don't always talk about, but that I am seeing across the country, is that when we're doing when we're paying closer attention to um, uh, delivering input that our students are able to um, understand and respond to. And when we respond to their utterances back, we, we, without even realizing it, we're creating a more equitable and a more responsive classroom setting, which means that over time, we're creating more speakers of the language that represent the entire demographic of our communities and not just the upper crust. You know, it's always been sort of like college bound kids who are taking three, four years of language and it doesn't have to be that way. So the equity piece is, as you know, a big, um, a big push for me in terms of why I teach this way. And, mm -hmm. um, and so we're setting up a, our second annual um, comprehensible Midwest conference. It's going to be at the end of September on the 30th and it's in Ripon, Wisconsin. And we've got a bunch of national presenters that are really good at teaching people how to teach this way. And then some local presenters also. And we tried to get Bill to come everybody, but he couldn't. So we got the next best thing, which is a raffle to get a half hour of phone or Skype time with BVP. Have you told everybody nice. about that bill? I have not. I have not. Well, but you just gonna did. Be, but I just did. I just did. Oh my gosh, I just did. Um, yeah. So this is a, it's an it's an early bird registration thing. So if people get their registrations in early here in the next uh, week and a half, then they have the chance to win that half hour with you, and they can use that, like you said, either to chat you up or to get the real skinny on uh, weight or age, or. <laughs> 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 well, Good Gallica, luck with that. can I just pause you for a second, Grant? When you said the next best thing because you couldn't get BVP, I thought for sure you were going to say you were going to invite <laughs> Angelica and Walter, but alas. Well, you didn't reply to my email. I never got an email. I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so so we have a conference. We have a conference in Ripon, Wisconsin, at the end of September the thirtieth. I'm sorry I can't be there, Grant, but I'm more than happy to lend my my name and my 30 minutes of time for a raffle. So I'm, I'm happy to do that for you. So I think it's fabulous. And I think if whoever the winner is, they would be wise to say, um, let's do a Skype session with my principal or, or somebody so that, that you can um, spread the message that language is not content um, farther and wider. Right. So, We're happy to do so that. So thank you guys. Thank you guys for what Thanks. you do. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Thanks Grant. Grant. Thanks for okay. calling, Grant. Thanks, Grant. Bye-bye. Yeah. Love Bye -bye. you too. Bye. Oh, we always love it when Grant calls. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'd, I thought that we had another call coming in, but it looks like it hasn't come up yet. Yeah, so uh, anyway, so those of you who just heard that, if you want, there's the Conference of the Midwest um, in September 30th in Ripon, Wisconsin. You just Google it and you'll find it. Oh, it looks like Marcy is calling back. <laughs> Marcy, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Hey, Marcy. Is that you calling back for the Diva Challenge question? Yes, I am. I have the title of it. <laughs> oh, great. So now you know it's a comedy album. So Marcy says she has a title. So what was the title of Bette Midler's 1985 comedy album? According to Google and not my friend, it is Mud Will Be Flung Tonight. There you go. Ding, ding, ding. There hey, you go. Excellent. Marcy. You're going to win a prize. You redeemed yourselves. Yeah, you win a prize. Now, I have to Yay. tell you that, Marcy... Just because you call twice does not mean you get to your name goes in the hat twice. Sorry, your name only goes oh. once. But, <laughs> right. but you do win a prize. Right. You do win automatically win a prize. But your name does go in for the book drawing. So we're gonna do that in a second here. Okay. Um, so good for you. And make sure that you email us your um, address at twithbvp at gmail dot com, and uh, we will get your prize out to you. And if you win the book, you we need your address there too. So 
All right. Sounds great. Thanks. Thanks for calling well, back, thanks Marcy. Thanks for calling again, Marcy. Right. Thanks, Marcy. Bye-bye. Yeah. That's a great... I Actually, if you guys Google Mud Will Be Flung Tonight, you actually won't find much on it online and YouTube or anything like that. Um, and uh, But it's really funny. It's dated. It's 1985, but it's funny. Oh, my gosh. I still roll. Okay, Walter, are we doing the drawing now for the book? I just did the drawing. <laughs> um, I know. That's why I said it, because I see you putting your little fingers in that. In that, that and the winner that is? Jar. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, we got to gotta, like, be dramatic here. Dun, dun, wow. dun. Yeah, we got to, like, just make people, like, do, 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 wait with anticipation, right? <laughs> well done. Well done, sir. Well done. Okay. All right. Okay. Now, Walter, did you okay. pull the name out? I pulled the name out, and... I think this person's going to be very excited because the winner is Marcy from Ann Arbor, Michigan. <laughs> Yay, hey, Marcy. Marcy. It does pay to call twice. <laughs> Look at that. Well, good for you. Okay, Marcy, make sure you get your um, your email, uh, your, uh, ad, your, what do you call it? Address. Your physical address to us through Mailing email address. so that we can send. You get two prizes. You get your prize for answering the Diva Challenge question, and you get a signed copy of my book. While we're on the topic, BVP on Language Acquisition Classroom Practice, published by ACTFL, the American Council on Teaching Foreign Languages. Um, and again, those of you who've been listening, if you're at ACTFL in Nashville, I will be there. We'll be doing a book signing on Saturday and all kinds of fun things. So uh, come and look for us in the exhibit hall. All right. Anything else coming on uh, Mixler or email questions before we got a few minutes here before we got to wrap up? Who's looking at stuff? I'm I've got at a generic like... question. Well, generic questions are good. So... Um... We'll see if, than if you've got a few moments to, yeah, you're right. See if you've got a few moments to answer this. Um, this is Celeste, and she's wondering what you think about placement tests at the university level. She says hmm. it's been a challenge to deal with classes with heterogeneous levels of students. Students do learn and acquire language at different rates, but sometimes it's like teaching two different classes in one. She says, I know about differentiated instruction, which can worsen cl classroom activities, but if the gap is very large, there's still going to be lots of differences when it comes to student success. So any suggestions or advice? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to tell Celeste, I love your pizza. It's just absolutely fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> it took Walter a while to get that one right. No, I'm just kidding you, Celeste. I know you don't, you're not Mama Celeste. Um, placement tests are, are really difficult things because, to my knowledge, um, it, it, they're all about explicit learning and explicit knowledge, but not about proficiency. And so you wind up with people in a course who might have some somewhat similar range of knowledge about language or about the language of learning, but they could be all over the map in terms of proficiency um, or ability to use language or comprehend or whatever. Uh, and so the problem is not with, with placement testing, it's with the kind of placement tests we have. We should probably actually do a, uh, a show on this at some point um, down the road, because uh, placement testing is really an issue, um, at least at the university level. It's not a K through 12 problem because, you know, usually you don't place in K through 12. You're just moving up into the system because you're in the same school for six years or two years or four years, depending on where you are. So, but it is an issue for university situations um, for students coming in um, to the university structure. So maybe we'll talk about that um, down the road, but the, the problem with placement testing is the kind of test and what it tests. It's not so much that we have placement tests. So, and I, so that's all I can say right now about it because it's just too big of a topic to deal with in, in 30 seconds. So, but that's a good question. We should get to it sometime, right kids? Yes, we, we should. should. Yes, we should. I like it when you agree with me. We always should agree with me. Agree you with you, don't we? You do. Yeah. So see if you agree with me. Is it time to do the acknowledgments? I'm afraid it might be. Time to wrap up and Aww. say our thank yous. It went by so I'm fast. I'm so glad we had this time together. together. Oh, well, no, okay. Both of so we want to thank. We're going to be in with our thank yous with our technical producer. Who's that, Walter, our technical producer? Danielito Treguito. <laughs> Daniel Trago. Yes, of course. We want to thank our media producer, Luca Giappone. Those two are anchors for our show behind the, the window there. Can't do anything without them. And of course, we can't do anything without our trust, talented and trusted call handler. And what else is he, Angelta? He's our, our muscle man, our muscle man. Muscle have man, Dustin Felice. So thank you, Dustin, for all the work you there. And this year, we have not one, but two assistant production managers who came to work with us, Chad Mosley and Ryan Steck. So Chad and Ryan, welcome, and we're glad to have you on board. Uh, we want to thank the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University, especially our dean, Christopher Long. Thank you, Chris. 
As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed in this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters or any of our sponsors or any other official entity of Michigan State University. And of course, we always thank who kids? Who do we thank the most? Our listeners. Our listeners, our audience. We love you. We'll be back next week at the same time and same day. I'm thinking of talking about comprehensible input and input processing next week. We'll see. We'll see. Write to me if you like that topic. Until then, have a great weekend. And of course, happy second language acquisition to everybody. Goodbye, everybody. Auf Wiederhören. Bis nächsten Donnerstag. Exactly what she said. Can you say that in Portuguese? Uh, if I knew what it was, then maybe <laughs> I could. <laughs> Good point there. Ciao. How's that? <laughs> that works in Italian. That works actually in German, yeah. too. Lots of languages. <laughs>